Scofflaws is a show about the history of crime, criminals, and the investigation thereof. There may be discussion of adult themes and generally icky stuff. Also, neither host is a legal professional, and this show does not contain any legal advice. Remember, crime doesn't pay. Unless you're really good at it. Hello, and welcome to The Scofflaws, a history of law and disorder. My name is Sean, and joining me is my... I'm still going to go with lovely. My lovely co-host, John. <laughs> Say hi, John. Hi, John. <laughs> All right, so if any of you saw the Facebook uh, notice that we put up, Kate is unable to record until after Thanksgiving. So John is here as one of our three special co-hosts to fill the gap until then. I'm the new Kate. Yep, this this is the first time Scofflaws has had two male co-hosts. Yeah, I know. It, yeah, sorry everybody. Is do but, we are we supposed to talk about sports now? Yeah, probably wrestling or something like that. I don't <laughs> know. Do you what what's what's your favorite sport man? Um, Sporty McSportster, I guess. I'm a big fan of. Wayne Gretzky? He's a sports guy. Yeah, there That's we go. A pull. Let's go with that. That works for me. I'll take it. So how is how's your day been, John? I'm good. I'm moving for the second time in two months. So oh. my my life is full of boxes right now. That's fine. But, you know, yeah. The boxes they, never go away. No, no, they don't. They just get fuller and then they get emptier. <laughs> so that's been my life for the past week or so, but hey, you know. Hey, I've been there. Mm-hmm. Today, I went to my brother-in-law's birthday party, which his wife planned as a wine tasting that started at 11 in the morning. Ooh, fun. <laughs> yep, it turns out morning drinking doesn't really agree with me. Yeah, I mean, usually the idea is... You don't swallow all the wine? I don't know if that was the theme at this particular wine tasting. but like... Oh, no, it was they opened like 10 bottles and everyone just okay. shared. So it's just make make this wine disappear kind of wine tasting. Yeah, you know, I should have I listened to the old saying, uh, beer before liquor, never been sicker. Yeah, wine no, before yeah. brunch, Sean, you have a problem. <laughs> I've never heard that one, but I <laughs> mean, that specific. sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> See, I'm one of those people who can't drink a whole lot of wine. It gives me headaches. So, like, I mean, I still would. I'm just saying, like, I'd be in an even worse position. You see, I, I have the the double disadvantage of not only was it morning, but we had to leave the house so early that I didn't get to have breakfast. Mm-hmm. Oh no. Okay. So that's that was your second mistake. Yeah. That that was the two mistakes. Yeah. Not having breakfast and even attending this party to begin with. Yeah. Alright, yeah, so... Yeah, that's called karma. Alright. So, John, you want to tell the people about yourself? I could, yeah. Well, me, myself, I mean, I'm a Renfair performer, just like my co-host here. Um, I'm also a, a writer uh, for a couple different projects in and around Chicago. 
Um, and I'm an enthusiast of Sherlock Holmes as well. Uh, I portray him actually at a convention, a steampunk convention, believe it or not, up in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. It's called TeslaCon, number one rated steampunk uh, convention in the nation. So, you know, that's my deal. Yay, that. <laughs> yeah. Steampunk Hell Sherlock yeah. Holmes sounds like a great band name. It's my, yes. It's <laughs> it's my everything, really. <laughs> so that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about, uh, would it be fair to say the world's greatest fictional detective or the, at least the most well-known? I would say greatest. I think, I think Sherlock Holmes is uh, probably one of the most impactful fictional characters ever created. Um, easily of the 20th century or, you know, well, technically it was 19th century when he was created, but right on that cusp, right around there. All right, let's dig into Sherlock Holmes. Let's do it. It's like Watson always wants to do. (laughs) Uh, I ship it. What do you want? Truly the Batman and Robin of the the late 19th century. Uh-huh. No, exactly. And and weirdly, that's part of what I think is so um amazing about Sherlock Holmes and his his influence and his um you know, the character and him and Watson are such a fantastic crystallization of like the 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 hero sidekick trope that so much of our media is built on just period like anything you know from from buddy cop comedies to superheroes to anything you know it's the the two kind of slightly dysfunctional but respectful crime fighters like it fuels just so much of pop culture you can't even measure the influence they've had you know now if i if i remember right isn't the the aren't the books framed as though it's Watson writing the books after the fact? Yes. Um I could be wrong on this. I think there might be one or two that have a, a twist of the the uh style and are written in more of a third person style or sometimes a little more from Sherlock's perspective. But usually yes. The idea is this is Watson writing his his memoirs or his recollections about particular incidents with his good buddy Sherlock Holmes. Watson's a side character in his own memoirs. Yep, yep. He is. He's he's he serves so many of the fantastic functions that a sidekick is supposed to do. And this is true. Um the great fantasy author Michael Moorcock said, uh sidekicks exist to have the reactions the hero can't have. So, essentially, Watson is in that respect the ultimate sidekick because he's the guy, you know, Sherlock's a genius, he's brilliant, he knows everything. He can't be the one to say, "My god, how is this possible?" That's Watson's job. Right? It's Watson's job to be amazed that he figured something out that was impossible. Yeah. Exactly. He he's the he's the bump set and Sherlock is the spike, you know, from from like the author's perspective. It's very it's a beautifully effective setup, you know. And some portrayals have made Watson like goofier and goofier and sillier and sillier until he's like incapable of putting on his pants without lighting something on fire. Like, you know, all, different interpretations have different, you know, takes on the formula. Yeah. But fundamentally, as the guy who has to be there and deliver the fun exposition show, so Sherlock can go, well, if you would just look at this man's fingerprints, you will tell he is actually a demon or whatever, you know. That sounds like more of the Stephen King version of a Sherlock story. Yeah, it's not quite accurate, but 
You know what I mean? Now, so, yeah, it's yeah. Now, wasn't uh, now? I mean, I know a lot of Watson portrayals. I have him as the dummy, but wasn't mm. he? I mean, isn't he like a a surgeon? Isn't he incredibly yes. smart himself? So in the in the story, um, he's former military. He was actually deployed. I think. Gosh, I'm going to be embarrassed if I can't remember this. I believe he was, in fact, deployed in what is today Afghanistan, um, the Middle East. I I could be mixing that up. I don't want to misspeak here. He he might have also been in one of the Zulu Wars. Um, but he was fighting for British colonial interests. You know, he got wounded. That's canon. Um, and he came home and was a little bit listless and, you know, unsure of where he was supposed to be. And then he just kind of randomly moved in with this weird guy named Sherlock Holmes. And what do you know it? They actually got along pretty well. This is one thing that I think some of the interpretations really don't always do justice to is the fact that him and Sherlock have a genuine bond and mutual respect. Like a lot of interpretations like the Cumberbatch BBC thing may play it a little more like sassy and, you know, odd couple antagonistic almost. And like there is that, but... I was surprised when I read some of the stories that just how much Sherlock is sitting there going like, I couldn't have done this without you, Watson, or good observation, Watson. Excellent. I wouldn't have seen it myself. You know, they really are a team. It's just that it's just that Sherlock does the heavy computing and Watson yeah. sometimes notices the thing that Sherlock missed. Yeah. It, you'd be surprised, you know, how do Baskervilles like, believe it or not, Sherlock disappears for a solid like third of that book. And it's just Watson. Um, Sherlock shows up like towards the end, but he disappears for like the middle to close to the climax of that entire book. Um, and when he comes back, he says like, my God, Watson, you've made incredible progress on this case without my, con without my interests. You know, I, I was surprised by that just because so much, you know, it's kind of appropriate, but so many Sherlock adaptations have such a worshipful attitude to the title character that the other ones kind of fall by the wayside. You know, yeah, I'm. I'm right now. I know that that Arthur Conan Doyle served in some war. I'm trying to figure out mm -hmm. what it was because I know he was a surgeon in that. Yeah, and I think he that's was an the... academic. Um, he was a couple of things. He had, believe it or not, he had an interest in the occult. I believe. Um, his Wikipedia but... page here says he was a Freemason. Yep he he was into some of that that esoteric, you know, new agey kind of mystical stuff. But for whatever reason he decided Sherlock Holmes had had to be the epitome of rationality. He had to be just the most reason focused human being. Vulcans before there were Vulcans. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Um I had it here and then I lost it. I think it was like the Boer War or something like that. Mhm. Mm that sounds right. Something yeah. where, where England was shipping people overseas to fight people. Yeah, there were a few of those around then. It's the tail end of the glory age of the Empire, so it has a lot of those imperial colonialist, you know, uh, imperial colonialist values. Going out with a whimper but trying to make it a bang. Yeah, or just kind of that, that wistful so-called, you know, Watsonian, Watson goes, ah, I remember in my glory days in the war. Something like, you know, even though he got half his leg blown off or whatever, he's like, oh, if only I could go back. You get some of that. Oh, man. Mm -hmm. So I 
I didn't realize how few actual, like, books of Sherlock Holmes there were. When I looked it up, there's only, like, four of them. Yep, sounds about right. Four main books, and then how many stories is that? Short stories, 56? That's, that's yeah. what uh, Wikipedia says, yeah. Yeah. The Sherlock canon. <laughs> yeah. Prime the Sherlock canon! Yeah, exactly. The head canon. <laughs> so yeah so since we do have to ostensibly talk about like the crime part of it what made sherlock sure. such a great detective well all right and this is super cool um sherlock holmes is he well to clarify he is not the first um literary detective not by a long shot there were a couple uh antecedents to him in french literature um the main one that Doyle drew major inspiration from was C. Auguste Dupin, who was created by Edgar Allan Poe, who really invented the uh, detective story as we know it today. Not um, someone you normally think of when you think detective thriller. Yeah, Edgar Allan Poe. He 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 essentially invented the genre, really, because it was his idea, and this was incredibly innovative, to create sort of a mystery that the the reader could solve while the detective was solving it. This this really was pretty new to his thought. You know, it's so obvious to us today because we're so swamped in this fiction. But um, yeah, he decided. You know, what if I what if I seed the clues in the beginning, and I'll put the the suspects out there, and then I'll kind of work my way towards the end, and they can come there with me. And it proved hugely popular. But one of the things Sherlock Holmes and and Doyle picked up on that became such an essential component of the formula was actual forensic and scientific investigation. Um, and Sherlock, Sherlock actually, Sherlock's stories actually featured forensic techniques before they became common practice from police. Like that's how influential these stories are. Well, right. No. And, and I, that's one of those things that when they adapt it to like a modern setting that kind of mm -hmm. loses its its moorings because yeah. that's what the police nowadays have. But now you have to make Sherlock Holmes smarter than Sherlock Holmes was. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's tricky. And I know the the writerly technique about that. That's part of what Watson's there for. Like I said, he's got to be the guy to say. No man could possibly get through that window. It's 20 feet in the air. And then Sherlock's can say, well, if you look at his footprints, you would tell he had a trampoline on his shoes or whatever, you know. Um, but it's that subtle misdirection that you get from having other characters who can't always see things that, you know, like a real detective might not be confused by this stuff. But as long as there's a character there saying that's impossible, the reader kind of believes it. Yeah, you know? but but the second you put it in modern times and put a modern crime scene investigation mm -hmm. team there, then they just look like they just look like morons. Oh, it makes no sense. Like Sherlock breaks so many rules of actual real world deduction. Like for instance, he makes every assumption. Like you're you're not supposed to make assumptions when you're assessing a crime or a crime scene. You're supposed to just gather the evidence dispassionately and then wait till you're back in the office to figure out what actually you know. Sherlock is always just going, oh, well, there's a tuft of hair in this keyhole. There's scuff marks on the bookshelf. Obviously, this man was a Freemason, you know. <laughs> it's not how it works. Um, but what I thought was so cool, though, and this is 
so iconic to the character. Sherlock is one of the first literary expo- uh, um, characters to ever do things like use a magnifying glass, very closely associated with the character, um, use fingerprinting. He actually used fingerprints before they became common practice in Scotland Yard, the actual police. And, um, oh, what was the other one? Fingerprints, magnifying glass, and, um, hold on, I'll remember. Well, those two right there, I mean, that's pretty cool. And not wearing a deerstalker cap? Yeah, no, he didn't do that. It wasn't actually a thing in the books. That was just somebody drew a picture of him and it took off. It's fine. <laughs> it's part of the image. What do you want? Yeah, you know? I mean, it It capped it off nicely to have, like, right. the, the little cloak and the hat. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you've ever seen the original design of Batman, like, it's not even slightly... He didn't like, even have gloves. No. Oh, no, it's like this big, stupid, purple, like, circus outfit. Yep. Yeah. Yep. But that that's sort of why Superman and Batman have that, is because they were based on circus acrobats. Mm-hmm. Yep, true story. But yeah, um, fingerprints, um, oh yeah, analysis of typeface, too. Uh, Sherlock, uh, story, uh, a case of identity, one of 1891, uh, according to my notes here. Um, one of the first uses of Sherlock focusing, one of the first uses of a literary character looking for um, identifying marks in typewritten documents. And this was at a time, too, where, like, the printing press, like, it wasn't new, but it was still kind of cool that, like, you had, you know, printed newspapers in the morning and stuff like that. That was still considered pretty, pretty hot stuff, you know. Sherlock's sitting there going, like, hmm, well, how can I use this to solve a crime? (laughs) Now, how can I identify this by location and be right Mm -hmm. every time? Yeah. And it's often totally ridiculous if you compare it to real life stuff, but, you know. Oh, it's it's usually a total ass poll. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I mean, my favorite is in in the one short story where Irene Adler shows up, uh, a scandal in Bohemia. Um, I read this whole story. It's not long. Like the audiobook for this is like an hour. You can find it on YouTube. It's easy. Um, but I would I loved how Sherlock's plan to get the blackmail material from Irene Adler literally revolves around. We're going to cause a distraction outside the window, because as you know, any woman, when she hears a distraction, will reach for the thing that is most precious to her. (laughs) So obviously, even though there's a stranger sitting in her living room, she will just instinctively reach for the blackmail material. And it works. Well, you know, like she outthinks him. She, She knows he's planning it. But, you know, this is the world's greatest detective's plan here, you know. To to yell fire and see what the first thing she goes for is. Basically, yeah. Yeah, Sherlock didn't have a high opinion of women. No, sad to say. That's that's kind of what I was talking about, about those colonial British values, you know. This was an era, kind of a pre-suffragette or, you know, concurrent suffragette era. And, uh... Yeah, Sherlock and Doyle, you know, they had some kind of regressive opinions. It's, you know different time um but yeah that's that's really the only appearance of the greatest female character in sherlock holmes is you know canon is, is she just kind of shows up once she escapes which is nice she outwits him 
the only one that people actually remember. Yeah. Because who remembers that Watson was married for a while? Yeah, and then she got fridged. She got stuffed in the fridge. Um, but, you know. So, yeah. as, so aside from, like, the, the main uh, Conan Doyle, like, canon of books, what's your favorite interpretation of Sherlock? Oh, man. I mean... I have opinions on the BBC show. A lot um, of people have opinions on the BBC yeah. show. It's it's my opinion that it started so strong. Like, I, I fell in love with Benedict Cumberbatch, just like everybody else on the planet. And, you know, they're very well-crafted pieces of television. But I really, really do think... And I don't want to just sound like, like a cranky fanboy here. It, it's not just that they kind of lost the spirit of Sherlock Holmes, but they also did it to the show's detriment. Like, I, I'm fine with goofy reinterpretations. I play steampunk Sherlock Holmes. Like, what do you want? You know? Um, but, uh, for instance, Irene Adler, in the BBC show, she doesn't win. She still has to get saved by him at the end, in the one episode. Like, she's supposed to get away of her own accord, of her own free volition. She disguises as a man. Sherlock sneaks into the place to try to find her again, and she just passes him right by. And later she sends him a letter saying, Ha ha, I was actually the man. See you later, hon. And then just disappears. Um, And in the show, they do that for like 10 whole seconds. And then she just gets captured again. And then Sherlock needs to, you know, she's in love with him now. She wasn't in the story. And then at the end, he just saves her because, like, he doesn't really care about her, but he wants her to live. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's weird. It's it's a stupid it's way to end like that. that story. Yeah. Like, it's that. It's also things like, um, I feel like, what, like I said also, you know, the, the egality of his and Watson's relationship kind of isn't there. Like I said, they are really supposed to be two parts of a team. And in... BBC Sherlock, they're not. It's just the Doctor and his companion. It's yeah, yeah. It's Doctor Who running around solving, being wacky and annoying, and his companion there to say, "Oh well, what are you doing now?" Yeah, it's it's really third Doctory. Stephen Moffat never like outgrew that. Yeah. So it it's not bad. Like I said, it started really strong, but it just lost its way for me. I'm yeah. a I'm a big fan of the. Uh... Who directed it? Guy Ritchie, uh, the one. Oh that, yeah, yeah, Downey Jr. Yeah, I like those ones because it it touches on the fact that a lot a lot of adaptations don't really look at the fact that Sherlock, you know, could fight. Sure. Yeah, he was champion boxer. Yeah, he was a That's strapping lad. Too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think he. I don't think he like Vulcan calculated all of his punches, but yeah, yeah that was a little cinematic. Um. Yeah. That's another fun innovation, though, too, though. Uh, Sherlock, canonically, is actually a master of a martial art called Baritsu, which is, at the time, what what England would have thought of as a derivative of jiu-jitsu um, and boxing. So he's also, arguably, kind of a, an antecedent to, in a weird way, like, kind of kung fu martial arts characters, too. It doesn't show up, it's not quite as action-packed in the stories, you know, he uses it, like, I think like two or three times in the whole canon. Yeah. But it is there. It is canon. 
sort of flips that on Batman, where Batman is much more punchy, but is supposed to be the world's greatest mm-hmm. detective. And Sherlock yep. is a great fighter, but still is the world's greatest detective. Yep. Yeah. But but I I would not feel good doing this episode without mentioning what I think is the funniest idea anyone ever had for Sherlock Holmes, which is the cartoon that was on when I was a kid called Sherlock Holmes in the 22nd century. I swear to God. Okay, no, 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 hang on. This is one of those things where I saw it when I was, you know, like 12 or whatever, and I swear to God, I thought I dreamed it for years. No, you know? it's, it's real. It's real. I found it on YouTube one day. I was like, oh my God, that actually happened. I don't even remember this shit. Like, I remember the intro and the stupid theme song. And I remember he had a sassy female sidekick and Watson was a robot now. Yep. Nope. It was uh, Inspector Beth Lestrade of New London, of New Scotland Yard, because it has the Futurama trope of, oh, it's the future. Everything just has new in front of its name now. Yeah. And Watson was a big, like, burly beefcake of a robot. And it was literally just Sherlock Holmes because he got the Captain America treatment after going off the Rheinbach Falls. Oh my god. That's, yeah. It froze him and Moriarty, and they just mm-hmm. thawed out Sherlock Holmes, because we need you to solve some crime for us. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. See, there was a second there where, where everyone at Fox Animation or whatever, whoever's making, like, Saturday morning cartoons, were just like, well, what else can we put on? Let's just, let's just do Biker Mice from Mars, sure. Uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, Mummies. The Mummy Show. Mummies Alive. I remember that yeah. one, too. Let's just throw them all in there. I don't yeah. know. We'll sell toys for it later. This was a co-production of Dick Entertainment and Scottish Television. Oh, my gosh. So this this was made for Scottish TV in some re- regard. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Okay. Well, speaking of... Speaking of adaptations, yes, um, that was definitely a thing. Um, what was the other good one? Yeah, the Downey Jr. movies, I, I genuinely like those movies. I know that's another one some of the purists kind of go like, oh, well, it's not, it's not accurate. It actually kind of is, believe it or not. There's actually part, like we said, it is one of the few Sherlock adaptations to acknowledge he is a, a, an expert fighter. Like, once again, it doesn't show up too much in the stories, but... And it's a drug canon. fiend. Yeah, yeah. He's he's pretty hardcore addicted to uh, cocaine in the stories. He shoots it up. Um, uh, and also, like I said, the, sh- the movie does portray him and Watson having more um, mutual respect. Like, still, still goofy, odd couple stuff, which is okay. But they do seem genuinely like two halves of a whole. Um... You know, for all the action movie blockbuster stuff they they have, it I, I do think it does a good job with that dynamic. Yeah. Plus, it's I mean, it's it's also just a pretty movie. Oh sure. Oh yeah. They're just good I, blockbusters, you know. Yeah. I, I I really wish they'd make a third one. Yeah, I think they're working on it. Yeah. Hopefully. So to to cap off this part of the the episode, would you believe me if I told you that that cartoon had two seasons to it? I. <laughs> I mean, I would, but I'm still not 100% sure this existed or if it came from, like, the Berenstein universe and... Nope, you know, I, I swear. Here. 
premiered in the UK late spring 1999. Oh my god. And ran from 99 to 2001. That I knew it existed, but I didn't know I got two seasons worth of like existence out of it. That blows my mind. Oh my gosh. I'm going to yeah. have to rewatch this sometime. Yeah, I definitely have to try and find this now. Um, I found that Target has a lot of like old cartoons that like tried to get off the ground and just like fell flat. Like Archie's okay. Weird Mysteries. <laughs> oh yeah. My gosh. I swear to God, there was a cartoon that was Archie and the gang solving Scooby-Doo-esque mysteries, but it was like real, like, like pseudoscience and like ghosts and sh- and stuff. Oh my gosh! Like but, I said, they were just trying to see whatever they could sell toys for. Yep, 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 yep. All right. I still remember the Irish Power Rangers, <laughs> Mystic Knights of Tiernan Oak. It was. A I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. They uh, had, like, power-up armor, and they had medieval, like, go-karts they could hop into. It was amazing. Oh, man. Uh, I wish I had a Fox Saturday morning cartoon podcast now. There was so <laughs> much just amazing garbage that came out of that yeah. time block. We're getting off track here, but I'm okay with it. Yeah, I think we're wrapped up here. Um, okay. So that was, uh, that was our... Our retrospective on Sherlock Holmes. Um, if you have anything that you like to add to the conversation, you can email us at scofflawspodcast at gmail.com. Um, you can also follow us online at on Facebook through uh, Scofflaws, a history of law and disorder, on Twitter at Scofflawscast. Um, you can also be that first lucky Patreon donor, which I know Kate isn't here to remind me to put it on the Facebook, but I swear to God I will eventually put it on the Facebook. And, uh, yeah, no, it's, what is this, like the fourth week of, of her reminding me beyond the grave? You, you, you'd know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Is, uh, is there anything specific you want to, to plug, John? Um, I will tell you one thing. Um, I'm working with another wonderful podcast called Locked into Vacancy Entertainment. Um, they do monthly shows at uh, Stage 773 right now on Fridays. You can find us on Facebook. And we're also, this month, uh, October 23rd, a Tuesday, we are going to be doing a rendition of Orson Welles' War of the Worlds radio broadcast at the Chicago Public Library. Um, it is the 80th anniversary and uh, they got us to do it. So I'm in it. Small part, but I'm in it. Nice. And it should be a great show. It's free. First come, first serve. Uh, so please uh, feel free to check us out either at Stage 773 or at Chicago Public Library. All right. I'll uh, I'll try to make sure to put a link to that in the show notes. Or the, Sounds good. Yeah. Um, does uh, Isn't one of my fair doppelgangers also in Locked into Vacancy? Uh, no, he's in Starlight Radio. Which is another well, fantastic. Well, I know that's I know that's Ansel. Isn't Andy Huddle in? Lock oh and... yeah, you have more than one doppelganger. <laughs> no, you're right, Andy Huddle. Yeah, he's he's the uh, he's the co-director. Yeah, Ansel, by the way, is the guy who does the the intro uh, that you've all heard so many times now. Fun fact: he's not actually British. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. All right, so. John, uh, at this point in the podcast is where I usually throw out a weird, dumb law that I look up at the last second, and today is no different. 
Um, this one comes from New York. Uh, the penalty for jumping off a building is death. Huh. Wow. Well, see, now what I want to know, though, is like, what's the what's the standard of height? Because like if I'm on like the last step of the Capitol building and I hop off, technically, haven't I jumped off that building? You know, I guess this is this is one of the few that this site doesn't provide like extra details for. But I imagine mm. that it's jumping off with the intent of like suicide. Ooh, you know what? Can I can I actually pitch you one uh, that I know? Do you want to do a double weird law? Sure, let's do is it. Is that all right? Okay, here. I, I'm, I'm going to look up the specifics here. Um, but in Chicago... Um, here, wait, just one second. This is true. In Chicago... Um, Chicago... Yes, this is true. Uh, if you detonate a nuclear weapon... Within the city confines of Chicago, the city, uh, the the you know the city limits of Chicago, it charges you a one thousand dollar fine and thirty days in prison. Charged by, charged you by the rotting homunculus of the remaining police force. Yes, yes, it is per per violation specifically. So if you do more than one, that's sixty days, and that's two thousand dollars. So yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, I'll tell you this, too. Here's the other fun thing, too. Um, hitting and killing a uh, city road worker, I believe, is a $15,000 fine. So if you're going to detonate a bomb, make sure not to hit any construction workers. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's I guess so. Yeah. All right. This has been Scofflaw's History of Law and Disorder. Thank you all for listening. Uh, my name is Sean, and this has been John. Say bye, John. Say bye, John. Yeah. <laughs>